Again, to another episode of the Kitchfork podcast about indie music of the 2000s and the website Pitchfork Media and Indie Kitsch. But today, uh, we're going to do something a little different. So before we begin, I'm your host, a co-host, Liz Ryerson. And I'm your other co-host, Max Cohen. And we both agreed that, you know, our first four episodes, we covered, you know, around 2001, 2002, some seminal indie albums that sort of begun the era and that really described something that Pitchfork was really attached to. So we wanted to take a little break and go into something that I know both of us personally have more of a relationship with, emotional investment, etc. And so probably there'll be like a little less irony and stuff in this episode, although who knows. Not to mention like an artist that on a major label in the 90s that Pitchfork doesn't really care about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess unsurprisingly, to be honest. This one's just for us. We're talking about a musical titan, Indeed. I think is fair to say. I think so. I, yeah. Yes. If not recognized as such, then should be recognized as such. Absolutely. And I think we can both agree that she still doesn't quite get her due, especially outside of like certain circles. And there are probably reasons for that, but that doesn't take away from the fact that she doesn't get her due, you know? If you're not a third wave feminist lesbian, like you're, nobody's giving her her due. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, of course, we're talking about Tori Amos. And her debut album, Little Earthquakes, which just hit its 30th anniversary earlier this year. It came out January 1992. Originally, I think, first released in the UK. And apparently, people don't know exactly what day it was released in the US, which I find funny. No one can agree. That's very, Well, you know, it was 92. <laughs> Nobody knew anything. There's a lot of history we could go into with Tori Amos, which we will. I did a lot of research for this, but I have also been, you know, a Tori fan for a while. However, I don't think I grew up with her music in the same way you did. So I'm kind of curious, you know, to hear your background and relationship, both to her music and this album. Yeah, Tori Amos music is the first music I remember hearing, like, in my life. I am the youngest in my family by a huge degree. Like, there's seven years between me and my next youngest sibling. And my older sisters, like, loved Tori Amos, adored Tori Amos, would play her all the time, would order her sheet music so they could play it on piano. And so, literally as far back as I can remember, which I guess 92, I would have been four, I have listened, I've known Tori Amos, I've known her music. Like, these are songs that are as rooted in my psyche at this point as like Beethoven's Fifth or any Raffi song you heard as a child. To the point where like for a while I was like, is Tori Amos good or have I been brainwashed into loving her? <laughs> and I think 
through our conversation today, we can confidently say Tori Amos is amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, but it's, she's, I think, informed a lot of my taste as a music lover and also as a musician. Well, at the same time, like, nobody's really gotten this sound again i mean you know i guess part of it is that you have to be an extremely talented musician to pull it off yes that's what i was going to say <laughs> right but you know there's a level of, of like songwriting and stylistic panache that like you really only get here so tori's been sort of this bastion of this kind of music in my life there's this rock that i've been tied to this entire time wow yeah deep in my soul tori amos I mean, she's kind of like your Beatles or something. Like, I grew up listening to Beatles. and Yeah. And I've had a similar kind of thing of, you know, is this actually good or as good as I think because it's so attached to that. So that's really interesting. Yeah, Tori Amos, I would definitely say Tori Amos is my Beatles. For sure. That's crazy. I could totally see that, though. It's just crazy thinking of some of the subject matter of some of her songs. Oh, yes. It's weird. And that's how I became who I am. Yeah. Like the Beatles maybe sung about some kind of edgy things, but <laughs> Tori Amos is a different level. Right. And now I'm a, like a gay trans woman. So who do we have to blame for that? <laughs> Tori. Uh, the gays love Tori Amos. <laughs> As they should. If you know, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But what about you? How did like, for me, it feels obvious because my sisters were of the age and Tori Amos was big. But how did you get into Tori? Ah, oh, wow. It's My story is so completely different from yours. So we're going to get into serious time a little bit because it is attached to like my own. Her work in general and some work of a few artists is like very attached to it's some stuff that I can ver relate to very deeply in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, but I grew up like in a very misogynistic household. I did not have a good childhood. And I think female artists, like in general, you know, outside of maybe some artists my mom listened to who were older, I didn't have any relationship with them. It was kind of verboten. Like I remember my uncle like asking me what I want for my birthday. And I so desperately wanted to say Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette. <laughs> And I didn't. I was just like, um, it's fine. Oh, Liz. Because, like, I would get made fun of by everyone. Right. Like, my dad would make fun of me. His peers would make fun of me. Like, I would get shit. My, you know, I grew up in a misogynistic household. And I guess that's the other thing. Like, I grew up in a household that was very emotionally cold mm -hmm. and people didn't talk about anything. And that was just how it was in the Midwest in general, but especially like my family. People did not talk about their emotions. So the idea of someone like Tori Amos being embraced or something like is, was genuinely scary, like an artist like that, because she's bringing in all these things that so many people just don't want to talk about. Do they just completely compartmentalize out of their lives? Yeah, she's really earnest and vulnerable in a way that I think is scary if you're not comfortable with like it's scary even if you are like she does not mince words. Absolutely. So I did not grow up with her music. I'm sure I saw the Cornflake Girl video like on VH1 or MTV because that's the one that got visibility. And I seem to recall seeing it or hearing it, but I didn't really have any impression of her outside of like hearing her kind of like slagged off and made fun of because she was in that kind of like, like the Lilith Fair crowd of like Sarah Lynn McLaughlin right. and Lorena McKenna, Annie DeFranco. Annie DeFranco. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Oh, God. I don't know. 90s media in general, like, love to make fun of, you know, angry feminists and lesbians and, you know. Well, not just that, but it's an era of irony, and she's a very sincere artist. 
Exactly. Even like more recently, Bob's Burgers made fun of her. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I did see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's actually pretty funny, but it's still like... It, it feels like a loving parody. I mean, she does grind that piano bench. Yeah. So I, I never really heard her music. And then in college, right when I started transitioning in a lot of artists, like especially her and a few others are like deeply attached to me, like transitioning and a lot of stuff like that, because it was just this whole world, like so many female artists like her and Bjork and Kate Bush are the big ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, were all artists that I had heard of, but completely like locked off from ever listening to or, you know, engaging with their work. Very defiantly feminine artists. Yeah. But I think because I I was afraid and mm-hmm. uh we had this thing in college when i was a senior my roommate and his girlfriend and their group of friends had this thing where each week they would like gather like in this guy's living room and listen to an album you know all the way through uninterrupted and there was like a rotation so where people would pick you know a different album a week and <laughs> i don't know it, it's like i kind of had like a, a mixed opinion of it because Apparently they had done this when they were freshmen and like they stopped doing it because my friend had played Shoo Shoo in the residence and they were like mad about it. And I was like, <laughs> you guys fucking suck. Like, Get over yourself. <laughs> get over Come yourself. On. But anyway, yeah, they called it the album project. But yeah, so somebody who was friends with my friend played Little Earthquakes and that was the first time I heard the album. I remember being really struck by Me and a Gun in particular, you know, because it's the acapella track. It's... Uh, really noticeable and I remember being like hey I kind of like this and this was around the time you know when I had just started transitioning it's so funny because the person who played it I remember like shortly after she was like castigating me for like the sins of men and stuff and I was like in the closet as trans (laughs) and I was just like this happened like multiple times when I was a senior like these women being like you should write about your own experience or whatever and it's like I'm transitioning (laughs) you know but I couldn't (laughs) say it because I was in the closet I don't know it was very awkward Uh, and (laughs) I definitely have some anger and (laughs) issues and things about some of those understandably so I think but yeah I I never really revisited it until I had another friend, an online friend who grew up very Christian and had played piano and she was a big Tory fan and she was, you know, she gave me the capsule bio of Tory and basically said, you should listen to her first four albums. Mm-hmm. Just like that kind of stuff. And I was like, okay. So because I had already heard Little Earthquakes, I came back to it and I kind of gradually got into it. And then, yeah, I don't know. It's in my early 20s, I heard it. And then I got into the rest of her music through that. And it's very attached to sort of my life uh, of early 20s coming out as queer and, and trans and being like just in pretty horrible situations. Right. And kind of coming to terms with just all the like secrets and lies within my family that I was raised on and all that. So I just have a very particular, very intense, like emotional relationship with her music in particular because of that. And I think 
the other thing that you know we've talked about earlier is I know you don't really listen to lyrics nope very much but I think Tori Amos more than any other artist is the artist that got me to listen to the lyrics and really start thinking about them to the point where I can't not think about the lyrics all the time now and like their meanings that's interesting because Tori's Little Earthquakes is fairly digestible but Tori's lyrics get pretty batshit eventually i mean i'm talking about this album in particular right once we get into boys for pele and some of that stuff yeah it's way more abstract but this album is far more direct and it's far more easy to tell like what it's about and where it's coming from so yeah i just have i don't know it's weird it's like a a second life history or something right because i was like cut off from so many artists like her but the other thing i wanted to say is um I own this Tori Amos Little Earthquakes VHS tape, which has like videos of her from the era, as well as like some live performances. And the place that I bought it from, I was literally going to the show in Portland. This was like, I don't know, probably five years ago when I lived in Portland. And I was going to the show that it was like an evening with Pussy Riot. Okay. You remember Pussy Riot? Oh no, yes, I do, yes. And it was the most bizarre stupid thing i mean the one of the members was there and she was fine but the people who were like in the audience were all terrible it was really weird but i I got there really early and i was just going through this like record store and i saw this vhs for 50 cents nice and i bought it and then like years later i was at this party with a friend in la when i was in la and they had a projector with like a vhs player and they were watching something else and i was like play this Tori Amos tape and like my friend uh his wife well now wife she has a like a lot of queer friends so when I put this on like like all the lesbians in the vicinity were all crying and being like oh we love you Tori it was great (laughs) uh it was a great moment but anyway that's so beautiful so is the video just like the music videos yeah it's the music videos and some live appearances from around the same time that was like a thing for a while like yeah and most of these videos were directed by uh Cindy Palmano, who did the album art for the first few albums of hers, like the photographs and everything. So, but anyway. Toramis is very close to our hearts. And there's, you know, has the kind of fan base where, like, I think anybody who's a fan of Tori is, like, really a fan of Tori. Yeah. She's one of those artists that really either has hardcore fans or people just don't know of her or they kind of slag her off or because she's not cool enough or Mm -hmm. you know she doesn't have the cred that a Kate Bush or Bjork does even though I think she's the equal to them I think so too and I think part of it is that Tori Amos embraces a lot of things that are uncool and unhip but so does Kate Bush and that hasn't stopped her yeah I'm really confused as to why Tori is the one who got the shaft I think it's Kate Bush went away for years and Tori always stayed kind of in the spotlight, but her albums kind of got worse. Yeah. I think she lost the interest of a lot of people because the thing that my friend said when she introduced Tori Amos to me, she was basically like, you know, listen to the 90s stuff and you don't really need to bother with the rest. That's basically what she said. There is some stuff like after that, that's good. But you know, the thing is, is like that Imperial phase, it was like, first four albums are so good that like anything that's not on that tier feels like a disappointment yeah an artist like Bjork has has not really fallen off in the same way and even like Kate Bush has mostly stayed out of the public eye and hasn't really released much so I think that's part of it it's funny because Bjork was falling off for a bit with like 
Volta and Biophilia, then Volnakira got her really, really back in. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, so Tori Amos, I got a lot of information about her from, there are several books written about her, Mm -hmm. including one that she wrote herself, which I did not buy because, I'm sorry, it's called Resistance, A Songwriter's Story. I knew because it was released in 2020 that like half the book was going to be here talking about Trump. And there's this whole thing about used bookstores, how they got a huge influx of books about Trump like immediately when he went out of office. So mm-hmm. there's that quality to it, which makes it kind of hard to, re- especially, with, you know, it's like it's very pink pussy hat kind of crowd. <laughs> right. I'm trying to remember the biography of hers that I read because either she wrote it or it was an oral history because it was very much in that. Tori Amos weird flowery way of talking yeah the whole way through well that's another thing about her is that she gives very flowery interviews and sometimes she'll say things that are right on and really insightful and stuff and sometimes she'll say things that just seem like weird mystical woo-woo nonsense you know one after the other like I remember seeing an interview where she was like oh yes this song is like a fairy sister of mine who I let out of her cage to address the female circumcision of God or whatever. And then the next track, they're like, what's this about? Oh, it's about some girl I knew who was kind of a bitch. <laughs> yes. It's really weird. She just turns on a dime. She alternates between modes. Yeah, she has the affectation of referring to her songs as girls, which if you've ever read any of her interviews, you'll see her do that. She also like talks about her emotions as people. She kind of personifies everything. She talks about the force that helps her come up with songs she refers to as the muses. Mm-hmm. I think that's why I never really engaged with like interviews of her because I think I was kind of put off by it for years. And I would watch like, you know, tons of interviews with Bjork or Kate Bush, but I would kind of avoid reading about her. So I also discovered this older biography called Tori Amos All These Years, the authorized illustrated biography that's much shorter and from like the mid 90s, that's much more just like straight factual. Right. So I got a lot of my info from that. And also there's an incredibly comprehensive Tori Amos podcast called Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. And they have a huge array of quotes and stuff about each of the songs that they've used in the episodes. It's hosted by two gay men. So, I mean, you can really tell that Tori, she has such a profound impact on the LGBT community in particular. Yeah. In the same way that someone like Kate Bush has, you know, since the beginning. I think part of that is like the gay community's willingness to embrace the more sincere and fantastical aspects of a personality. Yes. You know, the love of camp and kitsch. I did just find the title of the book I remember reading, which is Piece by Piece. Oh, yeah. That's another one of the books that I looked at and then just didn't really take anything from. It sucks. It's not fun to read. Just because like Tori's weird flightiness is fun in interviews when, again, she's kind of turning on a dime and is often very funny. But when she's allowed to just kind of write and write and write about herself, it gets really impenetrable and insufferable. Yeah, well, and that's the thing about resistance. There's some good anecdotes that were interesting, but then there's a lot of stuff about her talking about like, oh, yes, I remember when the Iran-Contra agreement happened and there was lots of bad stuff happening then. Or there's like five or six pages, maybe 10 pages of 9-11 story. This podcast called And Introducing that I've listened to sometimes, they have this whole cliche about like musician 9-11 stories. And Tori's, Tori, I guess, adds, 
alludes to that in her most recent book. But anyway, so I got a lot of the info from that 1996 biography. I think it was by... You can actually find it on archive.org. You can rent it. I didn't know you could rent things out from archive.org, but there you go. Yeah, I didn't either. The more you know. Gotta love to turn my little blue world upside down I love to turn my little blue world upside down Inside my head the noise Chatter, 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 chatter You see I'm afraid I'll always be Still coming out of my mother upside So we'll get started on the biography. Also, Little Earthquakes was, in fact, in case you were wondering, what does this have to do with Pitchfork, uh, was, in fact, reviewed by Pitchfork when it was reissued in 2015. And we will talk about that later. But just keep that in your mind. Yeah, that was a disappointing reviews. <laughs> yeah, well, we're operating at an advanced levels. Just because this album is from the 90s and didn't come out when Pitchfork was active doesn't mean we're still not thinking about that aspect of it. So <laughs> We can't stop. It's our curse. Don't you ever think that we're not thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, she was born Myra Ellen Amos, later changed her name to Tori from the Georgetown neighborhood of D.C., Originally from D.C., then moved to Baltimore. Tori came from one of those families, and I think this was the era where everyone would teach their kids piano. Like, everyone had a piano in their house. Mm -hmm. I, I got piano lessons as a kid. I did as well, yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like, I mean, it still happens to some extent, but... But it was a thing. It was a cultural thing. Yeah, it was a very ubiquitous cultural thing. And she had, sort of like you, actually, she had several much older siblings and she was the youngest. And in between, while her other siblings were practiced, she would get up to the piano and started playing. And it turned out that uh, she was a child prodigy. Uh, she could right. just play stuff by ear. And she has chromesthesia, which she sees like images or things when she plays music, which I guess sort of gets at like her, you know, woo-woo-ness in general. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she was so good at the piano, in fact, that at the age of five, she auditioned and was uh, the youngest person to ever be admitted to the Peabody Conservatory, very prestigious conservatory in Baltimore, part of Johns Hopkins University. Extremely wild. It It is extremely wild to think about. So yeah, she was a child prodigy. You know, she would go to school as normal. And then on weekends, she'd go to classes at the Peabody Conservatory. But she had difficulty because she was just so good at hearing a piece of music and then being able to play it instantly that she never got into sight reading. Like she she didn't want to do... Tori can't read, famously. <laughs> yeah, Tori can't read. And she was very into pop music, something I definitely relate to when I started playing the piano and I wanted to play jazz music. Right. And my teachers, you know, was a conservative old lady who probably hated various minority groups. Um <laughs> Right. If you're not playing Stephen Foster, get the fuck out. Yeah. She had me play ragtime music as a compromise. Mm. But anyway, and so every year, because she was so young, she'd have to audition again every year, sort of. It was sort of like a conditional basis thing. 
And by the time that she turned 11, she auditioned again. And part of it might have been a money scholarship thing. She she claims that that might be part of it. Part of it is that she didn't want to sight read. And, you know, she was getting old enough to where they were starting to have this expectations of molding her into a very particular type of musician, which is like a concert pianist. Like, and that's kind of what her, you know, parents wanted her to be. Uh, her parents, by the way, her dad is a minister. Uh, his name is Edison. Um, I don't know if he's still with us. He might not be. But yeah, she was a she was a minister's daughter as well. So she grew up with all the kind of uh, things that came with that. Although it must be some kind of liberal-ish minister if she, he was taking her to gay bars and stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what we'll talk about. She said of him that he was kind of half Billy Graham and half James Dean. <laughs> that is a terrifying combination. <laughs> her dad kind of had two sides to him basically mm-hmm. he was kind of the stage mom of this equation but yeah she got kicked out of the conservatory and uh that's part of her founding thing it's um that's where the name why can't tori reed comes from which was her first act mm-hmm. she didn't want to read music and you know she didn't want to be a classical concert pianist ironically tori amos sheet music would become a cottage industry in the early 90s <laughs> yeah yeah so at the age of 11 she already felt like a fucking failure you know you know that's expectations that had put into it and this is one of the most relatable aspects of tori's life to me because i was not a child prodigy (laughs) i want to say that right now yeah but i've had so many moments like this in my life like musically of like failing auditions or people being assholes to me or you know and like this is what makes me deeply relate to so many of her experiences because you don't hear these stories enough from successful musicians like normally it's like oh you know i had some early hurdles but well and and she failed a lot like she failed this but why can't tori read the synth pop band we brought up earlier yes failed real hard (laughs) but you know for several years she kind of fell out with piano and then her dad was kind of worried it's like i have this daughter who's very talented i don't want this to be squandered he's like how about i help you get a job playing piano in piano bars and she was 13 i think this was 1977 and so they would go around to bars and the, the one bar that would kind of admit her was a gay bar and her dad would come and chaperone her and kind of stand in the back with his like clerical clothes in this gay bar. And he said that he felt like she was a lot more safe in the gay bar than any uh, any other bars uh, as a 13-year-old, which uh, probably true. Extremely true. But yeah, playing in those gay bars was a very, very formative experience for her that will kind of come back over and over again. So she's somebody who has kind of been connected to the LGBT community for a long time. For a lot of reasons that we'll get into, but chief among them that, you know, that influence as a child. Yeah. And then when she was a little older, she started playing bars, which, you know, she grew up around Baltimore, D.C. area. She moved various places, but politicians around the time that like Reagan got elected. Imagine when you're like 16 listening to the... People who are about to fucking put the neoliberalism into full swing. And I don't know. The decline begins right there in 1980. Just being there and being a 16-year-old girl, like playing in these bars around all that stuff. must have been a very strange experience. Probably informed some of her music, if not directly, then indirectly. 
Oh, another tidbit apparently is that her parents uh, got in trouble for, you know, chaperoning her to gay bars. And the people apparently in the church, like, community were very upset about this. And they were like, look, we're just trying to, you know, get our daughter some work here. And, And generally, she grew up in a conservative household. Her parents, like I said, they had facets to them, but it was generally a fairly conservative, uh, restrictive place, especially one of her grandmothers um, apparently was very conservative that she always clashed with. But eventually, as an adult, she decided, I'm going to make it in the music industry. She wrote a song, by the way, which I'm sure you might have seen a clip of that she wrote a song with her brother called Baltimore, like for some song contest. Have you ever seen this song? I have not seen this, no. Oh, it's very funny. There's like an uh, an old TV interview with her. I think it's from like 1980 or 81. She's like, I'm proud to be a Baltimorean. Oh, no, I have I have heard this. Okay, yes. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> okay. It's so nice to live here. I'm glad this is my home. I've got a homestead on Baltimore Street. It's some place to call That just unlocked a memory for me. <laughs> yeah, and around the time she's like, I'm going to make it in the music industry no matter what. So, of course, she moves to L.A. like you do. And she starts playing in bars and, and she plays all kinds of music um, because, you know, she's a child prodigy and can play pretty much anything. And during this time, at one of her performances, she's like stopped by a fan at the end and he's like, you know, I'm a big fan of your music. Can I give you a ride home? And she said, okay. And then, you know, this guy proceeded to hold her at knife point and rape her and threaten to kill her and she escaped. And this will factor in later. Uh, Yeah, this isn't normally, I think, the thing we would talk about on this podcast, but it it ends up becoming fairly important, not just to little earthquakes, but also the narrative of Tori Amos in the public eye, for better and for worse. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, this was Me Too before Me Too, kind of. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but then eventually she got a band together, and this band was called Why Can't Tori Read? And it was various session musicians. Phil Collins is on one of the songs. Really? I didn't know that. Wow. I think he's on Cool On Your Island, yeah. Which is actually a good song. People talk about how this album's bad, and it's not the best album. I like Cool On Your Island. Well, and this was the thing. like The the narrative for years was that, okay, if you listen to this album now, it is extremely 80s. She's wearing like this whole 80s getup, and that's around the time when she decided, I'm going to dye my hair red. She's not an actual redhead, even though it's a huge part of her image, mm-hmm. but whatever. And she changed her name to Tori just because she thought it fit better. I think somebody who was like a friend of her friend was like, you look like a Tori to me. And she's like, yes. And... Yeah, she got signed to Atlantic Records, and Why Can't Tori Read is a very 80s-sounding album. Extremely. But the thing is, for years, it was kind of like anybody who was a Tori Amos fan kind of expected that this album was terrible. Like, that's how it was framed. One, because, like, she had disowned it, and it was out of print. Like, you couldn't get it. Well, yeah, the thing is, it barely sold any copies. They barely did any promotion. The reviews that she got were generally very negative i want to read uh, a bit from this book this is from tori it says that was where all the illusions came crumbling down 
Tori remembers, it had all become about being accepted instead of making music I believed in. I bought into the whole trip. There's no question about it. I bought into the whole thing. It all became about making it. Like, this was going to give me some sense of self. Like, I was going to fill this empty hole inside. So when it started to fail, that's when I understood that the whole industry was based on sand. It's not based on rock. If you buy into the fame trip, you really lost sight of why you're making music. Fame has just got to be a sideline. It goes with the territory. Once you understand that it's a bit like mosquitoes. <laughs> if you're going to go and live in the wilderness, there's going to be mosquitoes. Actually, that's not a bad quote. But the thing I wanted to say about this is this album is actually pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, I think the one doc it has against it that most Tori Amos albums don't is that it sounds of a time. It sounds dated in a way that her albums usually don't. Well, this is the weird thing. If you listen to fucking, I don't want to slag off like Japanese Breakfast or The Weeknd or um, I'm trying to think of other artists kind of in this mode. But like, I listened to Japanese Breakfast, some of her recent music, and I was like, wow, this sounds like, why can't Tori read? It you does. Know? That brand and era of synth pop balladry that she's in, like, here's the thing, like, if you're into synth pop, if you like Depeche Mode, why can't Tori read as good, like, fits in that genre? It's better than some stuff that's, like, pretty critically celebrated now. I yeah. like it more than some of the, like, throwback 80s music that's become popular in more recent years. I like it more than Carly Rae Jepsen's Emotion. No offense to Carly Rae Jepsen. I, I think I might too, although part of that's a sonic thing. But you know, the, it speaks to a couple of things, one of which is the Tory fan base was a both an insular community and one of the like early internet communities. Like this is Tory Amos fans have boards and forums and there is Tory lore and all kinds of things like that. Web rings where you would get this popular consensus that's mostly based, I believe, just on the fact that Tory didn't like it. <laughs> exactly. She said it was a bad record. And for years, although more recently she's played songs from it and I think has come to terms with well, it. Well, it got reissued in like a limited release. Yeah. For record store day and it's on spotify I yeah think. you can find it easily online now so uh, like i said pretty good album it's good not as good as her first like four you know other albums if we're not counting this one as a solo artist but it's still a pretty good album no but it's better than american doll posse <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you don't treat me better maybe i'll just run So this is uh, continuing on from the book. It says, had the record buying public had any idea of the years of effort that put into getting this album cut, perhaps they would have given it a spin. Regardless, Tori's debut barely saw the light of day and was relegated by Billboard to the realm of bimbo music. Yes, Billboard called her a bimbo. I mean, that is a pretty hot album cover. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also a very Kate Bush album cover, like with the, the, the sword. imperial sword behind yeah. her. <laughs> I don't know. I like the video for the big picture also where the... yes. It's so good. She's talking to the cop and she's like, Wait a minute. Somebody just broke into my car and took my stuff. 
I'm sorry, ma'am. I'm writing you a ticket. You are illegally parked. Wait a minute. Somebody broke into my car, took my underwear. That's gross. It feels like, I don't know, feels like a very Tory sense of humor. I mean, and the bimbo thing or like the dismissing her as a woman artist is something that will continue to be an issue as we'll get into when we talk about the response to little earthquakes. But in spite of that, Tori's always been very defiantly feminine. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's part of the... Well, and the thing is, like, even though during this period she had kind of renounced pianos, she was trying to make it because pianos weren't, like, a hip thing to make it in the industry. Right. But even then, like, her songwriting shines through. Like, it, it's still pretty idiosyncratic, and it sounds like Tori mm-hmm. music. Like, uh, especially Floating City is, I think, the song that sounds the most to me like it could be a like a little earthquakes b-side or something like that yeah yeah but anyway yeah um i'll continue from this quote it says within three weeks of its release it was dead in the water and tori was crippled with confusion tori would later say that she became like jelly on the kitchen floor and would spend hours staring at the flex in the linoleum getting up only to make a journey to the bathroom the pivotal point came one day when tori walked into hugo's restaurant in full why can't tori read regalia she's got the you know the big hair the yeah you know whatever else Uh, This is from Tori. The record was failing. Billboard had called me a bimbo and it was really going down the toilet. It was an industry failure and everyone was very aware of it. There were two different record company acquaintances there. They weren't from my label. And I remember going up to them and they were snickering. One of them was snickering and one of them was ignoring me. And it hit me at that moment that I was a joke, that I had become a joke. And in that second, I went back to being four years old. I could just feel my four-year-old in my body going, this is not what I envisioned. To go from a prodigy to a joke at 24 was very hard to accept, but I walked out of that restaurant with waterproof mascara, not a lot of dignity, went home and took off my makeup, threw on a t-shirt, and pulled off my thigh-high boots. Yeah, and around that time, she had a friend who had a piano in her house, and her friend is like, this is what you should do, you're good at this, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And she was still under contract at Atlantic, but she was kind of in the place that a lot of artists are. And I I think this is a a thing that's come up more in recent years of a lot of artists get signed to major labels, especially female artists. A lot of people do not understand that just because you get signed, it's, it's nowhere near like actually to the point where you're successful or broadly supported by the label. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of artists who get signed to labels and then their music is just never released by their labels because... Yeah, it just gets shelved. It's a loss. Yeah, because the labels decides that they're not confident in them. They don't want to pay for further recordings. They don't want to pay to promote them. But they don't want to give up the contract to somebody else. So they just let these artists kind of sit there and wither on the vine. And this has gotten kind of more exposure recently due to like TikToks, you know, where some artists uh, have talked about it. And I've seen some like cynical skepticism of this, but I like p- people really need to understand that this happens like a lot. It's a real thing. A lot of like albums infamously have, were lost media for years because of that. I think especially like in hip hop, you would have things like Clips as Hell Hath No Fury or Q-Tip's first solo album that were held up for years, if not, I think in Q-Tip's case, a decade because of label hangups. Because they just didn't want to put it yeah, out. Yeah, Tanache is another example of an artist who had yeah, like a yeah. breakout and then just not anything released for years and years and years. Even though there was an album. Yeah, even though she was reasonably successful. But yeah, so Tori was very much in that place where that could have happened at this point. But yeah, she started writing songs uh, on the piano and started working with a collaborator who became her partner for a while, Eric Ross. Mm-hmm. And, you know, eventually finished the album... 
or the first version of the album and sent it to the record label and it was rejected. <laughs> they were not like confident that there was a single on the album and she was kind of in a point where she was kind of like back to square one again. Which is, and we'll get to what eventually changed their mind. It is wild to me that in the early 90s they would hear this album, like in the wake of the adult alternative boom that they would hear this album and be like, oh no, there's no single here. And I think part of the misgivings came from the idea that she was a piano player and that piano was uncommercial. Like obviously she was a very skilled musician and composer and writer. Um, For the first several sessions, she worked with this guy, David Sigerson, um, who recorded the initial songs. Mm -hmm. But then um, the guy from her label, what's his name? It, it doesn't really matter what his name it is. doesn't label heads don't have names but he's they don't deserve he them. was the person who was kind of like basically like nagged her i don't know how else to describe it he was like oh, i don't think we have a single on here i don't know about this and then later was like oh i'm fully behind this you know classic and then eventually gets an acapella like a, a harrowing acapella <laughs> song about sexual assault and says that's the single yeah exactly but yeah so they were like can you record one more song and she was like that's too much pressure i'm gonna record four more songs and so she recorded four songs with eric ross on a pretty low budget which is funny because apparently the songs uh with david sigerson were pretty expensive they have full string arrangements and whatever yeah you can kind of tell they've got that glossy i mean there's there's a lot more going on in them well there's some a lot going on in songs like precious things but it's a weird it's a little weirder and cheaper but also most of what's going on in precious things is less like a lot of other instruments and more like tori playing the piano in a very chaotic way. yeah so they recorded precious things girl tear in your hand and little earthquakes and so i think at that point the record label after a lot of back and forth had enough confidence to where they're like uh we don't know how to promote you we're gonna send you to the uk which is it may i don't know if this makes you mad but there are so many artists that i like who were based in the u.s who they're like uh we don't think the people in the u.s will understand you we'll send you the U. this happened with sparks also like yeah uh, yeah i don't know i God. mean at least they did it, it happens a lot yeah <laughs> i think it gave me this like shame about being from the u.s like musically for a long time and still kind of have this shame that like oh we, we were too stupid to get tori amos they had to send her to the uk but right that's what they did uh the last few songs she worked with um ian stanley the keyboardist from tears for fears and uh she recorded china and then at the very end she was watching the movie thelma and louise in the theater in 1991 so she was Things were kind of on the upswing. The album was close to being done and released and she was playing shows and stuff and she watched the movie Thelma and Louise and there was a scene of like rape. There's like a rape scene in there and it brought back her memory and she sort of broke down and wrote the song Me and a Gun, the acapella track, one of her most famous tracks and that was the last thing written for the album and it ended up being the first single for the album. In, in a move that I will never understand. I don't get it. Like maybe it's a response to like Nirvana putting out Polly. I don't get it. I just don't get it. And it and I, I don't like it. Like we'll get into it. But like, you know, one of the things that Tori talks about looking back on this era is how kind of scarring it was to have to talk about her trauma on the press circuit. Yeah. That kind of set the narrative for the album. I guess it was like kind of a promotional provocative move. I, I don't know. I have no idea why they did this. Apparently that was only in the uk that i think i mean i'm not sure yeah there's no way that would make it onto american radio 
I don't remember ever hearing it on the radio, but... I'm not even sure they played it on the radio ever. Like, imagine hearing that song on the radio. Yeah, I don't know. I can't imagine a DJ would... How does a DJ introduce me in a gun? (sighs) Yeah. So this happened at the end of 1991. The album came out early 92. It was a big hit. Sold a lot of copies, and, you know, she was kind of the next big thing. It went platinum like double platinum didn't it yeah yeah huge that's like two million albums and it was great timing on her part because her trying to be an 80s sellout artist transitioning into her being just like fuck it i don't care i'm gonna do this piano thing timed perfectly with the whole alternative music revolution that started happening in the early 90s and right although her stuff is not like ironic in the same way like here the thing is is like i feel like tori's attitude at the time to me always felt like it was its own thing because there was an earnestness and a sincerity that feels very Lilith fair, but she was also too weird. Yes. To like tour with the Indigo Girls. So like she always felt like this kind of odd woman out. It's funny too, because I think the weirdness is actually helped her a lot because that around the time like that is started to be valued like as more of a, Mm -hmm. you know, artists that were more idiosyncratic. It's just amazing. I don't think we could have another artist like Tori Amos. Like I I don't, there are so many female artists like in her wake, you know, that have been inspired by her. Right. But I don't think we could have another artist like her that has that like combination of things that she has just because of the realities of the music industry and that's really fucking depressing to think about yeah we'll never get another tori amos with the kind of support tori got you know throughout the 90s like i can't imagine a major label taking a chance on something like this ever again but yeah i want you to talk about now an infamous review that has made you mad and i know me mad for a long time oh can i hate chris cow yes Oh my God, because this gets at something that was anytime anybody talks about little earthquakes, it's in the context of me and a gun uh, in a way that I've always found fairly frustrating because it's like not a representative song and there's a lot more going on with the album. But beyond that, oh my God, I almost don't even want to read it. But like, so Chris Gow's review, Robert Chris Gow, famous, we talked about him last episode, Village Voice writer. Worst music reviewer in the world. I've called British music journalism the lowest form of literature, and that's a slight exaggeration because it's still better than Chris Gow's entire fucking career. Um, and Chris Gow kind of hates women, and it shows up a lot. Hard to ignore. It's hard to ignore, and it especially shows up here. Uh, Tori Amos' Little Earthquakes, this is the four or five sentence blurb. She's been raped, and she wrote a great song about it, the quietly insane me and a gun. It's easily the most gripping piece of music here. That means she's not Kate Bush. And though I'm sure she's her own person and all, Kate Bush she'd settle for. Cool. Cool, Robert. (laughs) It's amazing, like, that comparison to like one of the only other female artists that got you know celebrated at the time Mm -hmm. was almost universally like wielded in a negative way like oh we don't need any more kate bushes we have one kate bush you know even even though like you know at that point what was kate bush doing (laughs) like kate bush was entering her seclusion yeah uh red shoes you know not the greatest kate bush but pretty good that's okay it's a decent album the thing is like tori is a child prodigy like kate bush plays piano yes but like tori is a a, you know like i mean in a way bush was her own kind of child prodigy but not with piano and also regardless of the artist or the album to start it with well she's been sexually assaulted so that's pretty cool fuck you 
Well, and this is the thing, like, there was so much swirling around her at the time because there was nothing else like it. Apparently, for years, and we'll talk about it a little bit more when we get to Me and a Gun, but for years, she would play it at every show, and apparently she would have people come up to her constantly after every show telling them about these horrible things that they had endured Mm -hmm. and in the press they would ask her questions and they always want her to give more specific details because you notice i said like she talked about the incident and said you know she was held at knife point so there's some you know she changed it to a gun for the song so there's some creative license i think it's important to remember too because it's an earlier moment of like a pop cultural form of something like me too being discussed openly. And she was right. definitely like celebrated by a lot of people, but also scapegoated by a lot of people for, for talking about it. And people constantly wanted her to keep talking about it and keep returning to this whole incident because I guess everyone just loves to fucking talk about tragedy. And that's the whole problem with like so many of these like, you know, victim stories throughout Me Too is, is like, oh, you have to give specific details. You have to, yeah you know, and like as somebody who's been through a lot of shit, like, like it's, it's not always easy to talk about that stuff. And sometimes you don't even really have a great recall of specific details, especially if it happened to you. It's not easy to talk about with your therapist, yeah. much less some fucking music journal. And like, yeah, and I think that the, like people wanted proof or somehow they wanted to like catch this guy or whatever. And it just like never was like it had happened so many years ago to the point where she wrote the song. And like, it's crazy. And it's still, it's just amazing how many of these problems just still continue. We have the fucking Amber Heard, Johnny Depp trial. And, uh, you know, like people are just like saying that she's a lying bitch. We have fucking anti-abortion movement and stuff. It's just like amazing how much this stuff never goes away. <laughs> It gets worse often. Yeah, and it's like she she was dealing with stuff then, and uh, I don't know. It's horrible. It's so annoying because I think this album has so much more going on with it. Like, clearly it must. Like, so much of it was written before the song even happened. Well, and that's the thing. Like, in the age of social media, in the 2010s especially, like the later 2010s, there is this kind of idea of, like, trauma as a consumable object. And it has to be authentic and you have to talk about it in this specific way and you have to it's all this like very almost like self-flagellation under the guise of healing like certainly there's some aspect of it that is healing and that's of course why she you know wrote the song and some of the other songs in the album as well but like right it's important to understand that she's an artist and she's presenting these things in a very artful and creative way and it's not just like a trauma barf you know because no. we're in the age of like trauma barf it's so much more artful and kind of arch than that like one thing we talk about Tori Amos being like very wooey and weird this is a funny album like I think it's a very clever album and the way like a lyrically approaches a lot of things in a very kind of arch and funny way which is something I think gets like trampled over with Tori Amos as like this beacon of embarrassing sincerity. You know, the way Silent All These Years has become a, a shibboleth or like an icon of you're, you know, too earnest uh, in film and video. But like the album itself is like, it's complex, it's interesting, it has personality, it's not dreary, it's not a slog, like it's not just angst 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 like there's a lot going on that i love that never gets much like credit like that happy phantom would exist on here you know (laughs) like which is just a purely delightful song 
It's funny because it's my least favorite track, and I still like it a lot. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say it's a masterpiece, but it, like, you know, yeah, the reputation this album has of being this bloodletting, uh, like, obelisk of severity, I think, is overblown. Absolutely. I don't know. It's just amazing how much... I, I know you grew up with this music. It's almost like... It's almost like nursery music to you, or I don't know how to... Right. And yet, you know, especially going back into it, it's just like clear for me, like uh, how many of these things that she talks about are unresolved in my life in my mid-30s, Oh yeah. you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I didn't understand what she was singing about then. And like, every time I revisit it, it's like, oh, fuck, yeah. <laughs> it's almost like things keep coming full circle. Things keep coming back. I don't know if it's just the 30th anniversary of this album or what, but there's just something. It's the Saturn return, you know? Yeah. <laughs> if you believe in that shit. But yeah, I mean, um, important to realize that she played in piano bars for years. She played every type of music. She played classical music. She played pop songs. She's, And that experience directly goes into like learning how to construct a song, learning how to perform, and all that stuff is... Uh, skill that I don't think there's anybody else who would have been in the position that she was in like with her I don't know if anybody like as a songwriter I am consistently in awe of the way that Tori Amos constructs and crafts music yeah and I'm not saying that there are I'm sure there are plenty of people who have had early experiences with being a child prodigy or you know being a but when you think of a prodigious musician at least for me I think of like Ingwi Malmsteen or like somebody who is all like technique and not fun to listen to yeah in a way that like Tori Amos, the virtuosity is almost, it's not the first thing that hits you because the songs are so well-written. Well, and I think her failure for so many years is pretty central to that. Again, something I can relate to so deeply. <laughs> yes. I've had bad experiences with actually music conservatories. So maybe we can get into that uh, a little bit when we're talking about the songs, but. Right. I mean, if either of us were successful musicians, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh God. Uh, okay. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, the first song is called Crucify. Oh, we're getting into the track list. Okay, yes. Do you have anything else to say about the album before we get into the No, tracks? no, no. I want to talk about these songs. Okay. I love these songs. <laughs> okay, so every finger in the room is pointing at me. I want to spit in their faces. Boy, do I ever want to spit in their faces too, Tori. <laughs> every finger in the room is pointing at me. I want to spit in their faces. Yeah, Crucify. I don't know. what. It, when was the first time you heard this song? Or, and what was your impression of it when you did? I could not tell you the first time. Like, okay. I, this song is, like, baked into my body. But I will say, like, it's funny because I didn't really understand what it was about, obviously, clearly. And so at first, it's just, like, this really, like, dramatic, almost, like, kind of gothy little piano vamp, mm -hmm. which I think is the first thing that really appealed to me about it. The feeling of Crucify that has stuck with me for a long time is the visceral melodrama of it. Mm -hmm. Melodrama, I think, carries with it a, a connotation of being like cheesy or fake, which I don't think is true here. And I think 
over time, like I've learned to appreciate the lyrics a lot more. I think there's stuff in it that for all intents and purposes should feel pretty cliched. You know, the idea of crucifying ourselves or looking for a savior in these dirty sheets is, you know, that's personal Jesus. But the feeling of crucify to me, it's almost close to like what past the mission on under the pink is where there's this weird combination, this like escalation of drama throughout that always works on me. There's the thing about Tori Amos. I don't generally like singer songwriters or people like people are just, this is my piano and me, you know, that kind of musician. I think there's a complexity and a dynamic range to crucify and to a lot of Tori's songs that are mostly her and a piano that really pushes it beyond that sort of, you know, Gordon Lightfoot dreariness. Yeah, I mean, her piano playing is so lively. It's just like this ball of energy and chaos. I mean, it's beautiful chaos, I guess, but you know what I mean. I guess with Crucify, yeah, I think you're right. There is this like big melodrama. I can almost imagine it like soundtracking like Showgirls or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Or like the uh... Benedetta, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it got that. It's like that, like a prayer version of melodrama you know like absolutely i could see some very like provocative imagery over this well yeah and this is around the time that madonna's music is becoming very provocative too so Mm -hmm. it's kind of an interesting parallel although you know much different artists right but yeah yeah the line i've been looking for a savior in these dirty streets been looking for a savior beneath these dirty sheets it's so like i remember hearing it and being like wow this is like when I was starting to come out as queer, like, and trans and like starting to see myself a different way of, I had always looked at my life in this very pat, like boring, I'm from this rural area and it's kind of boring and nothing really substantial happens to kind of like constructing your life and yourself from this different angle of, you know, being part of this TV melodrama when all these crazy things happen and stuff. I, I think that's part of the the thing is like, to an extent, she's describing herself but to an extent it's obviously dramatized right but i think that's what i i like so much about it and what probably so many people found like cringe about it is like especially like the dirty sheets line or when you know it's just why do we crucify ourselves like yeah but if you compare it to like the grunge at the time it's not any more cheesily self-hating than the stuff that was coming out yeah, but it's more direct, though. I mean, it's more direct, certainly, than, like, Nirvana lyrics. Definitely more direct than Nirvana lyrics, but, like, you know, is it more direct than, like, Pearl Jam, you know, who are also very cheesy? I, I think so. Uh, maybe a similar comparison point that's way more cheesy is, like, what's going on by the four non Yes, which sucks. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, like, lyrically, you know, even if I was going to compare this to Personal Jesus, which it has some similarities to... The lyrics to that song are still kind of dumb. Whereas Tori, again, we mentioned that she's like this in interviews. Her songs have this way of combining metaphor with very direct, simple language that I'm always a big... Like the chorus is very straightforward about what it's saying, right? Mm -hmm. And the same with the pre-chorus. But like one of my favorite lines from this is the, um, you're just an empty cage girl if you kill the bird, (laughs) which like feels like fantastical Toriana, but in this context feels visceral because of how direct she is around it. Yeah, my favorite is is the opening line, every finger in the room is pointing at me, I want to spit in their face, is that I get afraid of what could, that could bring. That was my entire childhood summed up. 
Yep. It's like, uh, it's your fault. Everything is your fault. Uh, but also if you act out, uh, you know, that's going to bring some bad stuff. So you better just <laughs> definitely uh, something that I can relate to, especially the sort of combining of religion and sex like that she consistently does throughout her career i mean obviously it's like a cliche or whatever but if you grow up with that kind of background like i totally understand and i i didn't grow up fundamentalist christian you know per se but the area that i grew up in was very fundamentalist i would also say that the way she goes about doing that is consistently interesting like it's not the same kind of very tired madonna whore complex stuff that you would usually get it's more about like her personal relationships to both Mm mm-hmm and the way they kind of intermingle in her, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this again when we get to leather that I think is, it's so much more interesting to me than when people usually talk about it. I know when I first heard it, I was like, wow, this is almost like comically direct or something like I, I think my ironic listener ears or I, I guess used to being used to listening to indie rock. I wasn't quite like adjusted to used to people talking around the subject and not literally saying I crucify myself every day. Yeah. Something like so di- or, or when she says, why do we crucify ourselves? Which is clearly like she's talking about women right? or, or just people as a whole, you know, but like, no, she's probably talking about women. It's Tori. And the production is like, I think the production on this album is mixed. I mean, the, the album sounds pretty good. Her piano is recorded well, but there are some cheesy things to it. And the, I think there's like a, a little like clang sound like that mm-hmm. echoes, that reverbs. It goes. Yeah. And it's so cheesy to me. I agree. I think Under the Pink gets a lot worse about that. Oh, see, I like Under the Pink a little bit more, but maybe it's because of the more stripped down songs i think the stripped down songs are you know the you know icicle and, and such are, are amazing and bells for her uh but something like god or past the mission with like which are songs i love but have the wicka waka wicka waka yeah, guitars yeah <laughs> which feels way more dated than anything on here yeah there's some cheese and I, I think that when she's singing the overdub she's singing why do we crucify ourselves <laughs> You know, it's a lot. It's a lot. But the thing that really makes the song catchy is the, of course, the chorus or whatever you want to call it. You know, when she says, My heart is sick of being, my heart is sick of being. Yeah, her like ululating falsetto, I think, is usually used really well. Like, it's always hooky. When, when we get there, like the part in Happy Phantom where she's just like, oh, like, <laughs> she just has these like vibrato falsetto asides that I feel like usually that singing style feels like um, fluff when it happens as people stretching out syllables or whatever. Yeah. Um, but for her, she turns it into the hook more often than not in a way that like, feels right to her voice she has all these different voices that she sings and she's got a really good way of like contorting her voice to the personality of the she song. pronounces some stuff pretty weird sometimes but... oh absolutely she does Ev... we'll get to that but yeah this chorus the in really hard to karaoke i'm sure oh my god i can't imagine 
But I think that's the first earworm when you hear the album is really like that moment. It's like, you're like, this is what it is, but it's also like, it gets under your skin. There's something about it. Yeah, because there's that descending piano arpeggio that goes with it that feels oh, yeah. like sort of raindroppy. <laughs> the song starts in a way that would not feel unfamiliar for an adult contemporary song. You have very simple block chords, like in a you know major key, she's just singing normal. I mean, the lyrics are good, but she's just singing. And so the way it develops outward, it escalates and escalates. And then when you get to change, I think that's the first time this feels uniquely Tori Amos. Oh, and of course, I forgot about the bridge. She's she loves her bridges. Yeah, when she says "Please be save me," and it it feels like it feels like she's on fire, like she's being lit on fire, and she's trying to like put herself out or something. I don't know. It has this very intense. You know what I mean, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, she's really going for it, you know. And it goes nicely back into the the chorus. So yeah. Please, please, It isn't technically, but they, it always feels like a key change to me. Like the, there's something about the way she melodically shifts around mm -hmm. that makes the pieces of her songs feel very different. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, that's Crucify, a very direct, very intense song, um, as many are on this album, but I'd say one of the more. It's a good opener. Yeah, it's a good opener. It's a good opener. It's a good statement of purpose. It gets the edginess of Tori Amos out front well. Mm-hmm. You know, an edginess that may seem comical to us now, but at the time, you know, very, very edgy. Yeah. And it was the last single release. There is a video for it. And I, I just want to say uh, that outfit that she wears when she's like, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's like this dress, like where she's like walking into a bathtub. It's so fucking hot. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Tori, Tori Amos is like very good at being like Tori Amos has incredible looks throughout her career. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, that's Crucify. Um, the video is like, okay, but like that specific part of the video, I, I don't know how to describe. It's a good way uh, to watch her kind of grind that bench. <laughs> Apparently those shots were shot like elsewhere and the director was not like happy with them, but uh, her, <laughs> her grinding the piano bench is always nice. Classic Tori. But then we have Girl, and this was one of the songs written with Eric Ross mm -hmm. uh, on a relatively, like, these were demos written on a relatively low budget, and you can hear it in, like, the, the synth strings. Right. But, like, they use the synth strings well, I think, with the pizzicato stabs. Or they're not pizzicato, but they're very st staccato like yeah. stabs. It's kind of like marcato, I guess you would describe it as. Yeah. This is one of the more underrated songs on the album, I would say. I agree. Apparently, she wouldn't play it live very much very often until around 2017 like trump era you know around like time of me too and everything because it's one of those songs that goes directly into the theme of it and it also has that kind of it continues on the theme of you know looking for a savior in those dirty streets it's like we're finding someone who's in a very troubled state at the beginning when she says from in the shadow she calls and then the shadow she finds a way clutching her faded photograph my image under her thumb yes with a message for my heart very theatrical melodramatic mm -hmm. but also you see this character is down on her luck and i'm sure some of this is tori like 
you know, dramatizing her own emotional state post the assault and also post the failure of Why Can't Tori Read. Right. It is. It's underrated. It's funny coming back to this album because there's two or three songs that aren't that my sisters just didn't play a lot. And so they got to be kind of mine when I finally revisited the album. Mm-hmm. And Girls, one of them, which I think is one of the reasons why I love it a lot, but it also has the piano work on it is really interesting. Like it's this sort of like up and down escalating quality to it. It's it's very tense mm-hmm. um, and it's very minor key. I love the little like chromatic riff that just goes on top that, that goes. Duh, 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 yeah, duh, yeah, yeah. Duh. I, I can't fucking sing it. <laughs> we'll put it. We'll put a clip. In. We'll put a clip in. From the shadow she calls And in the shadow she finds a way Finds a way That's just like the little, it's silent all these years does that similar to like it begins with like a the da 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 yeah. yeah a sort of like chromatic riff it it's just like the little sprinkling of i don't know i don't know it's like of uneasiness in the in the pop song like something that again i think yeah comes off and we'll talk about it like gets much better in under the pink where she really really pushes that mm-hmm. but i think you know it feels like a very like stripped down almost gothic kind of song to me yeah it is a pretty yeah i think the synth strings sort of help and the there's a consistent like downbeat there's just a you know like a kick yeah there's a lot of reverb on her voice it's minimalist in a way that works yeah oh yeah the, the reverb's gorgeous yeah if, i mean we talk about so much music from the fucking early 2000s being so dry this was true of some of the like reworked versions of these songs that she did on a greatest hits the great reverb drought of the odd yeah and i think i think the originals just sound better you know because it really adds this you're going outside, you're zooming in this very desperate like woman and it's a cold night, kind of like that imagery. But then of course the chorus is she's been everybody else's girl, maybe one day she'll be her own. Goes back again to the theme of this whole album. I don't know, like so much of the conversation around Me Too and all that stuff, like these issues like come up over and over again, but she was one of the first to really deal with it in such a public setting and to make her songs be so direct and so directly about this. There's no winking. It's it's really what it is, you know. And it is something that's really powerful if you're like a young, you know, teenage woman or a young teenage, much closeted trans woman of like this idea of the persona or the faces you put on for everybody else to the point of like self-negation. Like there's a lot of layers to it that I think are immediately effective on the target audience there's also tori being tori on stuff like what the violence fill with water screams from the bluebells you know etc nonsense yeah i like the lyric with the part i i think musically also when she says she's like well i'm not 17 but i've Oh yeah, that part's great. It's a good song. It feels like 
there's this sort of low-key like gothic darkness that's always going to be latent in Tori and really comes out in Choir Girl. Mm-hmm. But I love seeing it. Like this and uh, Precious Things really digs into that in a way that I love. Uh, another good lyric is sit in the chair and be good now, which is said by like a male voice. Very Kate Bush touch, uh, I must say. I, I, I think most of this album does not sound like Kate Bush, but there are occasional things that are like, oh, that's a Kate Bush thing. And I'm, no. you know, it's fine. Kate Bush is very flagrant in a way that Tori yeah. is, especially with her arrangements. But yeah, the having the male voice say that, sit in the chair and be good now, yeah. is kind of a, a very Kate Bush thing. It's musical theater. It's that melodrama. Yeah, again. and become all that they told you. The white coats enter her room, and I'm calling my... And that I'm makes me... Calling th- my baby. Yeah, <laughs> that makes me think of the Hounds yeah. of Love, you know, like they're calling yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Kate Bush had a similar thing, too, where, where her songs always felt like, Oh, this is the soundtrack to a musical that doesn't exist. Yeah. That mix of storytelling and melodrama and complex piano work. Although Kate Bush is not as good a piano player as as Tori, obviously, who is. a lot better than most musicals I've ever seen. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. But but it's hard to deny that influence. Yeah. Castles Are Burning in My Heart is another uh, favorite lyric. Just it's a very evocative image. And it's also like... You know, this idea that you built up so much over the years, you know, she built up so much over the years of being this child prodigy and having all these plans and ideas and expectations and stuff. And it's all just kind of been burned and torn asunder by all of the the failures and, and everything like. So speaking of that, should we move on to Silent? Yes. So yeah, I also like <laughs> Girl Ends, by the way, with a with a, a, a very cheesy but very nice synth line where it goes boop, beep, boop, beep, boo, do, 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 yeah. do, 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 do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I love Tori Amos is not afraid to get cartoony, which I, again... I think some of that is Eric Ross because he was heavily collaborating on these tracks, Girl, Precious Things, uh, Tear in Your Hand, and Little Earthquake, so... Well, maybe. But Tori does have that style in her, her playing of being kind of jaunty. Mm-hmm. No, but yeah, he did heavily contribute to the sort of production and arrangement of those those particular songs, which were apparently recorded, like the demos were recorded just in her apartment, which I find kind of funny for an album that is like expensive in other ways. Like, Right. Yeah. Uh, so we got Silent All These Years, a iconic Tori Amos song. Tori Amos eventually became a spokesperson for Rain, uh, right. which is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. And this song was actually re-released later in the 90s as kind of their, like, track that kind of embodies that. Um, Rain is kind of a complicated organization because she was a spokesperson and early on, but they've had a lot of problems recently. There's actually kind of like an expose recently. They're kind of the planned parenthood of, of this stuff. And yeah. apparently they are, have not treated the people who worked for them very well. So uh, really depressing to think about. Yes. It sucks. Well, I mean, we can get into the structural issues with Rain yeah. for years, but like it kind of sucks with Silent all these years too, because it feels like it feels really effective at this specific kind of thing. Like this is a, a a song that, as somebody who doesn't care about lyrics, I think works a lot better lyrically than maybe it does musically. Mm. But I think it's one of her strongest like lyrical tracks for me. Oh, definitely. Yeah. In a way that I feel like is sometimes diffused by the music being a little schmaltzy. Yeah. But the lyrics cut, you know, the lyrics are very direct and very cutting. I like the string arrangements in this song. This was one of the David Sigerson songs. It doesn't 
grab me maybe musically maybe quite as much as some of the others do but i think the just because of the the lyrics and some of the other stuff i mean like i said this is why i listen to lyrics now because of like songs like this specific song so yeah let's read through the lyrics a little bit um i'm reading from genius so they might be a little incorrect uh hopefully they're not but they look right to me Excuse me, but can I be you for a while? My dog won't bite if you sit real still. I got the Antichrist in the kitchen yelling at me again. I love that line. Yeah. Yeah, I can hear that. (laughs) I don't know. It's like a bad childhood experience or like she mentions later like someone's uh, she's dating like his mother shows up in a nasty dress and like someone just yelling at you, just berating you like about all the ways that you're, I don't know. Many of us have had experiences like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Been saved again by the garbage truck. I got something to say, you know, but nothing comes. Yes, I know what you think of me. You never shut up. I love that line. That is such a good line. That is because you have to understand and maybe we can clip it out. That's not coming in like an an Ani DeFranco or an Alanis Morissette kind of song. That's coming in like this very lovely plaintive piano ballad. It's very soft. Yeah. It's very soft. It's almost nostalgic. And then you get this like really like biting witty one liner. Like it's so good. It's very effective in the context for sure. Been saved again by the garbage truck. I got something to say, you know, but nothing comes. Yes, I know what you think of me. You never shut up. Yeah, I can hear that. But what if I'm a mermaid in these jeans of his with her name still on it? Hey, but I don't care. Cause sometimes I said, sometimes I hear my voice. And it's been here, silent all these years. It's almost a relief that in Tori's age, they had no word for things like mansplain because (laughs) I feel like now people just use those shortcuts too often to where they become cliches. But here it's like such a specific image and something that happens so fucking often, you know? It's an excellent line. (laughs) But the chorus is, but what if I'm a mermaid in these jeans of his with her name still on it? I don't quite know what that means, but I've thought about that line a lot. I think there's a couple different ways you could take it. Uh, Like, is it her as in her talking about herself in the third person because she's dissociating? Or is it like your boyfriend's jeans who he let his girlfriend borrow at the time? Yeah, it could be something like that. But I don't care sometimes. I said sometimes I hear my voice and it's been here. Silent all these years. (laughs) It's so funny to me that this song, I think, was thought of as like melodramatic, sincere teen girl music. And I guess the chorus feels a little bit that way, but verse one and verse two are so acidic. <laughs> yeah. The silent, all the, I don't know, a great phrase. Um, it The fact that the the music kind of stops right there when she sings the, you know, you know. Yeah. Again, it feels a little Disney <laughs> to me. Yeah, it's it's a little Disney, but not in a bad way. I mean, there's, you know, Flaming Lips uh, played with Disney stuff a lot. So, you know. This is true. So you found a girl who thinks really deep thoughts. What's so amazing about really deep thoughts? Another great lyric. Especially, again, like the phrasing and the cadence of that works really well and the way she's delivering it. And then the way that goes right into like, boy, you best pray that I bleed real soon. <laughs> You better hope that I have my period so I'm not fucking pregnant. How's that thought for you? 
I wish that wasn't so relevant, but I guess it always is. My scream got lost in a paper cup. You think there's a heaven where some screams have gone? I got 25 bucks in a cracker. Do you think it's enough? That's one of those Tori Amos lyrics that she would go to a lot on like mm-hmm. Boys for Pele. It's like, what does that mean? I got 25 bucks in a cracker. Do you just like the sound of that? I'm not sure about that yeah, one. Yeah, but I, I like the specificity. Like there's something about the scream getting lost in a paper cup and the 25 bucks in a cracker. Like sometimes when she's just putting nouns in there and they don't seem to have any connection, I can kind of get the logic here. And the fact that it's so specific gives it a verve that it wouldn't have other, if she just said, I have a bus ticket, you know? Yeah. So we get to the second chorus and the the one thing I like, I do like the string arrangement for the song. Like when she slows down, she kind of is singing like, you know, and it's almost like a monotone singing. Like it's just, but a dead, 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 you know, it just goes on like that. And then she's, there's a pause where she says, it's been here, you know, and then, but there's kind of a swell of the string arrangement, you know, we can put in a clip or whatever. That's the Disney moment. Yeah. It's just very, very intelligent arrangement and intelligent singing. And in the second verse, it goes straight into uh, the bridge. It's just silent all these years go by. Will I still be waiting for someone else to understand? Years go by if I'm stripped of my beauty and the orange clouds raining in my head. Years go by. Will I choke on my tears Then fi- till finally there is nothing left? One more casualty, you know, we're too easy, easy. She talks about like in Crucify, she says one more victim too. It's like, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of amazing that, I don't know, I feel even more this way now than I did when I was 28. <laughs> she wrote this when she was 28. <laughs> Just like, is this it? Right. <laughs> you know? Is 24, this... right? She was like younger than that. No, 28 is when the album came out. Uh, she... Uh- Oh, I see. She might have wrote the song when she was 26 or 27, though. Why can't Tori Reid came out when she, oh, that's she right. was 24? Oh, that's right. It was when she was 24. Yeah, that debut came out at 24. But, you know, she'd been making music for a long time, of course, so it, yeah. it, it probably did feel like a... I think musically, maybe one of the reasons why I'm not super into Silent all these years is because it feels, to me, like a rough draft for Pretty Good Year. Like, the way that it's trying to mix the sort of discordant, like, interludes with this very, like sweet and normal rest of the song I feel like is done way more effectively in Pretty Good Year. And so I have that basis for comparison that they that they wouldn't have had. Pretty Good Year actually came out of Silent all these years too, which yeah. is funny. I, I read about that. I think musically it just works better for me in a way that Silent all these years is almost too musically on the nose mm. but I, I it's not bad it's not like it's a poorly written song yeah i like it a lot i i still think especially it's one that hasn't stuck with me as much as some of the others but uh, when i first heard the album i think this is one that jumped out finishing up with silent all these years i just wanted to mention one last line i love the way we communicate your eyes focus on my funny lip shape let's hear what you think of me now but baby don't look up the sky is falling yeah, I just the general theme of being in relationships with people and they're not they're never satisfied with who you are and mm-hmm. you're always not good enough and people judge you based on, you know, how they think you should look or act or feel and definitely something uh I'm sure many people can relate to, including me. <laughs> Let's go to Precious Things. Uh another iconic <laughs> Tori Amos song for maybe some of the Precious Things is maybe my favorite song on the album though. Okay, fair. 
this what this song is it's pretty arch i guess i i don't, I don't know like it's out there like in terms of it's the most like theatrical like you know like mm-hmm. metal kind of and this was the song another one of the songs recorded by eric ross and her and some other musicians mostly in her apartment and uh, perhaps influenced by apparently she had a roommate at the time who was very into metal music so it goes pretty hard you know as the kids say but it has those interesting breaths uh that play along with the piano line mm-hmm. this very like urgent like kind of sounds like she's being chased or something i don't know like this song and especially those breasts and sort of the piano line really feels like depeche mode to me like black celebration era depeche mode to me like that kind of Mm -hmm. gothic black synth pop kind of thing i I don't know i really i really like it i really love the drama yeah so much drama i love that the song starts kind of in media res too like Mm -hmm. the song starts with her saying so i ran faster but it caught me here like what is she running from who knows Uh, I love it when a song like just starts in the middle kind of like that. Yes, my loyalties turned like my ankle in the seventh grade, running after Billy, running after the rain. So she slipped and twisted her ankle, running after a boy that she was interested in. And then I'm sure all the girls or people laughed at her like they always do. Uh, so much of her lyrics are like catalogs of embarrassments and just being fucking angry and pissed off about it. But really, the the line that gets me at the song is, he said, you're really an ugly girl, but I like the way you play. And I died, but I thanked him. Can you believe that? Yeah, that's the line that I think about constantly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very pointed. It's a very pointed song. This is also the song that references my favorite friendship in music, which is the friendship between Tori Amos and Trent Reznor. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that line is so good, too. But the, the one thing I was going to say is I always pictured... She was talking about like some record label exec or some like older man in a position mm-hmm. of power and and he's like, "Oh, you're really an ugly girl, but I like the way that you play." And it just and her just like kind of sheepishly saying thanks and getting out of there and just feeling so pissed off about it. It's just such a a crushing image. And it's not really something even like so much, you know, pop music of the 2010s is, you know, quote unquote about empowered women and all this kind of stuff. But you don't hear like lines like this, you know, it's so much more direct than like a lot of people are willing to go right. even now. When Tori Amos is direct, it feels more direct for some reason because she's so prone to flights of fancy, I think. Yeah. Well, and then she gets into the, I want to smash the faces of those beautiful boys. And then we have the guitar, you know, very yeah. co- kind of cheesy, but still kind of. Yeah, the of, weird Led Zeppelin y oh. thing that goes under, you can make me come, but that doesn't make you G. Yeah. And then, so you can make me come, that doesn't make you G. The classic line uh, apparently, people, you know, every, every show that she plays it, people are like, woo, when she says that. <laughs> Tell them. <laughs> I want to smash the faces those beautiful boys, those Christian boys, so you can make me calm. It doesn't make you Jesus. 
Yeah, Ugh. iconic Tori Amos line. Wanting to smash the faces. I completely relate. Once again, these precious things, let them bleed, let them wash away. So a lot of the... We return to the subject material ab- about a lot of this is like cleansing and precious things. The idea of precious things is almost like sarcastic. I think it's like, yeah, the precious things are all these horrible things that have happened. Oh, another line of uh, the way that she pronounces the word demigods, demigods. <laughs> she has a way with things, <laughs> but you know, it's an intense song. It's like, it's unrelenting. Like it doesn't slow down at any point. <laughs> Yeah, another crescendo hits, you know, the beat hits really heavy when she says, and I didn't realize what these lyrics were, but I love these lyrics, with their Nine Inch Nails, she's not just referencing the band Nine Inch Nails, but talking about, like, being crucified, I guess, or I think she's actually talking about, like, girls with fake nails, and their little fascist panties tucked inside the heart of every nice girl. So what she's saying, and this is a theme, a very important Tori Amos theme that she, like, returns to, like, with The Waitress and some of her other later music of just like women actually being terrible to each other and just like throwing each other onto the bus. And I don't know, this kind of flies in the face of, you know, we talk about like artists like owning their sexuality and there's a lot of different ways that that conversation has happened. Obviously Tori Amos is a perfect example of someone like that, but uh, this is something I've thought about that so many tropes in like mainstream pop music are just about people, especially in the U S are just about people being so fucking mean. Mm -hmm. It's like, why I'm better than you, why I'm prettier than you and whatever. And there's like her calling it a little fascist panties tuck inside every heart of every nice girl. It's like, there's something just like fucked up about it. Like really like there is something fascist about it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. When people talk about particular, there's some pop artists that just really set that off. It's like, is this empowered or is this just someone being a mean girl, you know, with no... <laughs> right. I right. don't know. Is this empowering or bitchy? <laughs> yeah. And and Tori is being empowering. Yes, I would agree. I think she's on the, safely on the side. Uh, so then, anything else to say about Precious Things? No, I'm, I'm down to get into winter. Winter's my other favorite song on the album. Yes, this is my favorite song on the album. And it's weird because my dad is a complete motherfucker and I do not talk to him. I have not talked to him for 10 years. And yet the song about her relationship with her father somehow makes me cry. And I, I think part of it is it's almost like dreamlike. I don't know. As someone who grew up in the Midwest in a cold environment, like winter does hold a special place for me. And there's something just so fragile mm-hmm. about the song. Like it's a piece of ice that's about to break, you know? Yeah. She's really good at like evoking atmosphere in her piano playing that way. This is maybe the first song I remember ever hearing, right? Like this is how deep like if, if you're gonna say like how did i first hear tori amos the first thing i remember is winter well the piano riff is so memorable it's so haunting it's so memorable it, it's haunting and the chorus it surges so much with like so much warmth and like so much power to it i don't know winter is like stunning to me <laughs> it's definitely a top five tori amos song for me it's so i don't even know what to say about it like it's so good Heart when I think of winter, 
The song is about her relationship with her father. And just like growing older, I think the line that hits me, like uh, one of the bridges, she says, hair is gray and the fires are burning. So many dreams on the shelf. She's talking of her father. She says, you say I wanted you to be proud of me. I always wanted that myself. But (laughs) the hair is gray. It's so many dreams on the shelf. The world like was this innocent place. I had all these ideas and plans and it was so magical. It was almost like a fairy tale where she says the the line, mirror, mirror, where's the crystal palace? But I can only see myself skating around the truth who I am. But I know the ice is getting thin. I almost got choked up reading that because that's a, a very direct line right. that I'm sure her like LGBT and trans uh, fans can relate to. It's a nostalgic and a tragic feeling song. Like I think the turn on I tell you that I'll always want you near you say that things change is one of her most effective because it's set up so well. And that is like the point where the like the warmth and the beauty of the chorus goes back into how melancholy the verses are. Oh, I just love it. Yeah, I. <laughs> this is definitely one of those songs that gets me all choked up. It's yeah, it's beautiful. This song and Mother probably um, are the two that really. Mother's really good. But yeah, the string arrangement is so good in this song. Mm-hmm. Uh, years go by and, and I'm still waiting. Just the feeling of like that you've let your dreams kind of fall apart. You've run away from yourself and like who you are, and you you've listened so much to other people and and now you're just feeling like you're getting older and older and and time has passed you by and boy i can't relate to that uh, uh um and also i think i think this is something i struggle with there's so much compassion in the the line when you're going to make up your mind when you're going to love you as much as i do mm-hmm. it's so frustrating to me i think it's one of the the most emotional things about it to me because i do not have that relationship with my family and never have you know right they're kind of the antagonists so someone being that honest and like showing compassion in that way and i i think that kind of Definitely makes me tear up because it makes me wish, you know, I had that relationship, that kind of relationship with my family. But anyway, oh, my favorite moment of the song, though, is at the very end when she says all the white horses and then she goes, "Mm." she like goes an octave down and like hums and it's very ominous. It almost seems like death is approaching or something. Yeah. The horses have gone ahead, right? They're not. Yeah. Well, and the white horse, by the way, an image that comes up a lot in Twin Peaks, and Mm -hmm. it's this very ominous image. It kind of represents the dreams or this image of the unconscious. All the white horses have gone ahead. I tell you that I'll always want you near. You say that things change.
but yeah, that's Winter. Great song. Music video directed by Cindy Palmano. I don't really have much to say about the music videos of her early work. There's not a lot to them. It's mostly Tori Amos singing to the camera in a variety of situations. Silent All These Years, I think, is the one where she's in the box, which is the the cover right. of Little Earthquakes and is kind of the iconic image. But it's nice imagery, but it's not like stuff that really like jumps out to me as super duper memorable. But yeah, so the next song, we got a, a much lighter song, Happy Phantom. So you were talking about Happy Phantom earlier. What what are you? Yeah, your... I, I like when Tori Amos is a fucking goofball. I like, oh, what's the, what's the song on under the, hold on. I need to remember the name. The Wrong Band? Yeah, The Wrong Band. Thank you. I like when she's just being like jaunty and weird and funny. Like it's not, this is not a song that is going to change anyone's life. But it is a great song if you want to clean your apartment on a summer afternoon. <laughs> what I like is just this like idea that like, oh, the worst <laughs> things in the world. <laughs> yeah, the worst things in the world have happened to me. I might literally die today, but I'm just going <laughs> to, you know, get out my middle finger and say, fuck you and just continue to do my thing, you know. Yeah. Good sentiment to anybody who's queer, especially, you know, this idea that you face imminent danger in your life in general, going outside, being fucking street harassed, being harassed, maybe say by your downstairs neighbor. <laughs> Not something that's happened to me, uh, or is it? And yeah, the, the woohoo. <laughs> I don't know. There's not much to say about this song. Apparently, this song, I think it was between this song and the song called Upside Down. Mm -hmm. I, I think I like Upside Down a little bit better that wasn't included on the album, but I can see why this I think one... Upside Down's a better song, yeah. but I think I like Happy Phantom a little better. It's just, I like Goofball Tori. <laughs> yeah. It's another theatrical sort of song. Yeah. I wish I was as fancy free as Tori Amos in goofball mode. <laughs> um, like, cause the thing is for as wooey and like fanciful as she is, she's also, like we said, she's capable of being extremely funny. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's very funny and very cute. Like the whole story of this song. Although I also love the, the sun is getting dim. Will we pay for who we've been? Oh, such a great line. It's a very, the way like, that's matched by the piano completely changing tone. It's very like cabaret style thing. Like, is all this fun going to come yeah. crashing down at me? Is the divine judgment? It's got a Brechtian vibe for sure. Yeah. But yeah. I love it. Woohoo. <laughs> time is getting closer. The very fantastical imagery, too. I mean, this is what the song is, so it, it works, you know? Like, yeah. she's referencing Judy Garland taking Buddha by the hand and Confucius doing crossword with a pen. But yeah, this song and Leather go together well, too, I think. Yeah, they both have that jaunty rhythm thing going on of the staccato piano stabs. Yeah, and this is good sequencing because the ending of Winter is kind of ominous. Mm -hmm. If Winter went right into China, that'd be too much. Yeah. Yeah, if they put Upside Down on the album, that song in between there it wouldn't work as well. So it fits the album well. So then we have China. That was apparently the earliest song that she had written. And this does sound like you can imagine a different arrangement where this is like a Why Can't Tori Reid song. I, I, I was going to say, yeah, this feels indebted to like the 
atmospheric synth ballads of the late 80s in a way that the other songs don't like there's something very lush in a synth pad kind of way to china yeah and this is the song that was recorded last along with me and a gun with ian stanley so i guess you know she had this old song and she wanted to put it in it almost sounds like a standard or something you know like a it does yeah or like i could see it in like a 50s movie like a an old romantic kind of movie there's something very cinematic about china yeah so i will say i did not like this song very much when i first heard the album and this is one that's really really grown on me yeah i think the atmospheric sort of arrangement just the image of like being on an airplane and listening to this song is a perfect fucking mood because i listened to the song on an airplane yeah it's very cloudy and ephemeral and there's um I would say this is the song that, this is a weird thing to say, feels the most like Kate Bush of the songs on here. Not like normal Kate Bush, but Kate Bush when she's being atmospheric, like Mm. the second side of Hounds of Love. It's more of a a story. You can feel that she's telling a story and not necessarily talking. Or at least all this kind of stuff is abstract imagery or this romanticized idea that's sort of gathering around the center problem, which is in the chorus, she says, sometimes I think you want me to touch you. Well, how can I when you built the Great Wall around you? In your eyes, I saw a future together. You just look away in in the distance. But yeah, I love the line, you built the Great Wall around you. A problem so many people have in their relationships, just dealing with people being emotionally distant and cut off and just the feeling of disappointment and being let down. This captures that so well. It's wistful, you know, it's it's a morning kind of song that I really love. And I, honestly, this might be the other reason I don't like Silent All These Years is because I feel like they're similar tenors. Mm. And I, I like China better, although I can understand why one would feel the opposite way. There's just, China is less in your face about it. China would be a much easier song to cover also. It would, absolutely it would. Love China. Great song. It definitely grown on me over the years. I, I think I found it a little too poppy or insubstantial or less direct than some of the others, but over time it's really got to me. Um, and that was one of the singles released uh, as well. Like I said, a lot of the, the videos blend together. The next we have Leather. <laughs> this is the song that feels the most like a Brecht or a Gershwin number. Like it feels vaudeville <laughs> This is very vaudeville. I think they sung this on like an episode of what is Glee or something. I'm pretty sure. Oh God. Why? <laughs> I mean Glee. I mean it hits you right there. Look, I'm standing naked before you. Don't you want more than my sex? I mean, you can't be more direct. I used to listen hear this song all the time. I don't know what my family was thinking. <laughs> because yeah, the song is not subtle. <laughs> <laughs> you know this is another perfect like gay shame track you know like yeah. what am i doing here why am i having this meaningless sex? why hasn't the leather community fully embraced this as an anthem i'm sure some people have but it should be everywhere but the thing is it's not just the fucking 
campy burlesque side because she also has the fear and shame and paranoia with the chorus mm-hmm. like oh god could it be the weather why am i here if love isn't forever and it's not the weather uh hand me my leather yeah this is another like mixing god and sex kind of thing but it's it's arch and even the um there is a almost dramatic irony with the way she uses the third person you know especially like in the the third verse you know if you jump you best jump far yeah or i could just pretend that you love me the night would lose all sense of here or sorry a sense of fear but why do i need you to love me when you can't hold what i hold dear yeah it's perfect because it kind of captures that both sides of like cook up <laughs> sex of this like you know excitement and kind of arch campiness but also this like kind of paranoia and fear and self-hatred and trying to like grapple with that all at the same time but it feels like a song written by somebody else like it it feels like Mm -hmm. something that could have been written by you know somebody 20 30 40 years before that yeah a kurt vile track yeah (laughs) it is very kurt vile kurt vile with a w not (laughs) what's his yeah yeah the the composer (laughs) kurt vile look i'm standing naked before you don't you want more than my sex i can scream as loud as your last one but i can't claim innocence oh god could it be the weather But yeah, great song. And then we have Mother, the most underrated song on the album, in my opinion. I think I would agree. I mean, I think I've heard more people talking up like Mother than I have Girl. But I also think Mother's a better song than Girl. <laughs> like Mother is, there's a lot going well, on. Well, this is one of those things where, you know, the Joanna Newsom album, Yeast, where she has one song where like all the string arrangements sort of are stripped away and it's just her playing solo and it's so good. sawdust and diamonds yeah this is the sawdust and diamonds of the album there's no arrangement at all outside yeah. of her piano playing although her piano playing is so lush like she's gets so much tonality it doesn't seem like solo piano you don't even really notice it which is why that stuff works so she's a really fucking good pianist it's kind of nuts like that riff when it comes in The song transforms so much as it goes throughout. Like, it feels like a very mutable song. It also has the extended, very high, very feminine kind of intro that Icicle does on the next album. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the lyrics are just heartbreak. Like, oof. Well, and that's the thing. Like, you know, we talked about the lyrics so much, but this is a song you can really just get lost in musically. Yes. It feels like there's a whole world going on there musically, which makes this infinitely more interesting and complex than just, you know, an album that's her being confrontational or, you know, talking about her traumas. Listen, like as somebody who's not a lyrics person, if this album was just the lyrics, I wouldn't like it. You know, even though I like the lyrics, I think 
bands that are all good lyrics and not good music are not bands I like. I don't like Bob Dylan or Magnolia Electric Company or whatever. No, Tori's like the music here is as much, if not more of a star because this song's almost proggy. Like the sections are so multifaceted. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is another example of, I think it's the more abstract lyrics that she would get to in subsequent albums. She says, I walked into your dream and now I've forgotten how to dream my own dream. You're the clever one, aren't you? Brides and veils for you. We told you all of our secrets, all but one. Now you don't even try. The phone has been disconnected. She's playing with a lot of imagery. I mean, it's still relatively, I mean, you can get the idea that this song is kind of about uh, leaving the nest. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the first line. In a very literal way, yeah. Even just the line, mother, the car is here, feels like... I don't know. There's something like very homey and like captures that relationship just as well as any nest metaphor. Yeah. Somebody, somebody leave, leave the, the light, light on. on. Like yeah. uh, my life is here. And, but it's like thinking of life is also kind of this dance or this march that you're going through. That's kind of like, it's a dream. It's, it's strange. It's, you don't really know exactly what to expect or, you know, where things are going. And that in itself is kind of part of the, the strange mystery of, of life. If it sounds like I'm being overly broad and corny, just listen to the fucking song. <laughs> yeah, which like, again, it's a sentimental song. I can understand why some people would like be bothered by that. But if you are, you just need to chill the fuck out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just enjoy yourself for once in your life and feel something. Yeah. You know, it's uh, about leaving and being a performer and going off into this wilderness, but also trying to, you know, retain some sense of what was there to begin with you know yeah great song musically i don't know the piano arrangement there's so much you could spend hours talking about it it's a yeah very underrated song it's structurally very complicated there's like two different bridges reminds me of yes anastasia or something like that or like even some of the stuff that goes on in boys for pele like the way those songs kind of metamorphosize Mm -hmm. but yeah that's mother next we have tear in your hand this was another song that didn't unlock for me until very late like it was not one of my favorite songs to start off with because it sounded like her trying to be a pop artist a little bit more yeah i yeah get into that because this song i think is still has an unlock like it's still kind of my least favorite on the album it almost feels like uh, an attempt at an R.E.M. song almost. Hmm. There's something very like poppy and adult alternative about it. This one also brings in her harpsichord, you know, which would come back in a lot of songs on Boys for Pele. But yeah, it has that beat. It has that big backbeat. It was another one of the songs recorded with Eric Ross, like after the initial batch of songs when they had rejected it. I don't know. Yeah, it, I guess like it's kind of a groove and I don't think the non-piano arrangement elements are always the strongest on this album Mm -hmm. so I think that's the hardest thing it can sound a little bit cheesy or you know especially after listening to Mother which is just so much you know perfectly timeless because it's just piano so it, it, it took a while to get but it just the kind of like desperation and the way that she sings she just sounds exhausted the way that she sings the song and the lyrics and I think that's what I like about it so much especially like the pre-chorus I think there's pieces of me that you've never seen maybe she's just pieces of me you've never seen <laughs> such a feeling that I felt in I had so many like you know unrequited fucking feelings for various people and just this feeling of like well maybe you just don't understand that there are like pieces of me that you don't know that you know you would be attracted to or whatever 
you know, just that it's just such a sad feeling. It's just like, why am I going after this thing? This kind of like desperation. I think that's what has kind of like unlocked to me about the song. Yeah, I can see it. But uh, I don't know. Something unlocked the <laughs> the line about uh, if you need me, me and Neil will be hanging out with the Dream King. That's a reference to Sandman. She did not know Neil Gaiman at the time, apparently, but then met. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Th- I don't think she knew Trent Reznor at the time either, but she just liked Pretty Hate Machine and the Sandman, like all of them. <laughs> yeah. So she ended up being friends with both Trent Reznor and Neil Gaiman. There's a character that many people say is based off of her, although I think the character came before, but she said something like, we mutually inspire each other or something. I don't know. Anyway, I love the line also, I don't believe that you're leaving because me and Charles Manson like the same ice cream. <laughs> That's a pretty funny line. Yeah, again, she's funny. Yeah, I, the general theme of this is being broken up with by somebody who's not interested in you and, and is obviously like interested in somebody else. And just this feeling of like, I put so much energy, I put so much love, and, and you don't get it. The part that I love the most is towards the end where it says, all the world is dangling, dangling, dangling for me, darling. You don't. And just the way that she sings that is great. Mm-hmm. You don't know the power that you have with that tear in your hand. I love the line, you don't know the power that you have. Oh, the world. I'm not sure what tear in your hand even means, uh, to be honest. No, I mean, I don't really look into the things that Tori's trying to say. Yeah. Generally with her metaphors. Because they're more often than not completely idiosyncratic to her own experience. It's just this feeling of rejection of like, everything has culminated to this and yet you're still going to be here and you're going to be a fucking asshole and reject me and act like I don't matter, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it fits it at a good place in the album though, too, because it's kind of getting to the end point of dealing with some of these feelings, I would say. But yeah, and then after Tear in Your Hand, we got Me and a Gun. We don't really need to talk about Me and a Gun, I don't think. I'd rather not. Yeah. We talked about it at the beginning of the episode. Yeah, it's a it's, it's harrowing. It's know? harrowing. It's something I skip the song when I listen to the album now. Every time. I mean, you need to listen to it a few times, you know, at the beginning, but after a while you get the point. You don't need to keep listening to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get the idea, but definitely something that um, she's famous for, you know, for whatever that's worth. And this song would kind of haunt her for, <laughs> for many years. Uh, probably still does, I'd imagine. Yeah. But the title track I really, really like. Little Earthquakes, another song that really grew on me. It's maybe the weirdest songs on the album, at least in terms of how the it's... The most Kate Bush song on the album also. Yeah, absolutely. She's got the home sounds like the... Yeah, she makes a habit of these with her closers. Yeah, and I think that's that might be Eric Ross doing the voice because that was another track that they did... Shot in the wing. 
Actually, they did a really good job with this track. Oh, yeah. I think the production on this is my favorite on the album. Yeah. And it feels like this is a very cinematic song in the way that like a lot of Kate Bush songs are. Mm -hmm. Like it starts off slow. She's talking about, she says, yellow bird flying gets shot in the wing. Good years for hunters and for Christmas parties. And I hate, and I hate elevator music, the way we fight, the way I'm left here silent. And then, of course, the you couldn't have a better fucking thesis statement for your album right, right there at the end. All of these little earthquakes, here we go again. Doesn't take much to rip us into pieces. Mm-hmm just describes everything about the album and you know all these things all these experiences this this lifetime of pain and and rejection and just all these feelings i've had this song appear in my dreams so that tells you about the song yeah i can see it i've had people sing in my dreams like everyone collectively was singing give me life give me pain give me myself again just like it happens in the song god yeah that bridge is awesome she just really goes for it. I think this song is also, like, this song is more abstract. It's like a summation of everything that's kind of gone into the whole album. But it's also, it's a weird version of, um, in some ways, it's about being, like, disappointed by chosen friends and or chosen family. The line, um, disintegration, watching us wither, black wing roses that safely change their color. Sort of about, like, friends betraying you or sort of revealing that they're fake or... You know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't realize realize that that's what it was talking about, but that sort of hit me. Uh, definitely a feeling that a lot of queer people, again, can ex- relate to. An experience, certainly, I can relate to. So now I'm going to think of the song as Tori Amos's Clown Town. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Shoo Shoo song, Clown Town. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, I could see that. But yeah, this kind of builds into the give me life, give me pain, give me myself again. And boy, did these these lines uh, continually drive themselves into my brain over and over again. But yeah, and then she also has the interlude part of the bridge where it almost sounds like she's being stabbed or something. I don't know how to describe it. it. Again, she's really, she really goes for it. She's like, on that bridge. (laughs) You know, it has a very like 90s, almost grunge edge to it. Yeah, we can uh, drop a clip of that. It's great. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, as it ends, there's a lovely like synth line that kind of sweeps in. And I don't know, it just, it encapsulates, you know, it closes the curtain so beautifully. This is one of the great curtain closers. Uh, yeah. Maybe topped by Yes Anastasia, but that's uh, debatable. Um, but yeah, a great album closer to a great album. Listen to this album. I, I don't know how many times you said... You need to listen to this album and Tori's work in general, those first four albums. Uh, it's It yeah. ranks number one for me out of the, the five albums that we talked about easily. No offense, Broken Social Scene, but... God, it might be tight. The thing is, is like Little Earthquakes is not my favorite of this period. Like if I was going to pick a Tori Amos album, I would probably pick Choir Girl, mm. which would be number one easy. But it, that's not like a dig on Little Earthquakes because I really think these four albums are kind of unimpeachable. And which one is your favorite kind of depends on your aesthetic choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not my favorite album of hers, but it's kind of like the most iconic or it's the most direct. Yeah. It's the thing that I keep coming back to, like some of the emotions in the songs. 
I think it's a great place to start unless you're just like, I can't listen to normal music, in which case you should start with Boys for Pele. Yeah, it's harder to, it was easier for me to get into, but harder to stick with in the way that I stuck with Under the Pink and Boys for Pele. Uh, I listen to those more often, mm-hmm. um, but I still love the album. I mean, I love all, the thing is like the first five albums that we talked about, I didn't really have an emotional investment very deeply in any of those other albums is even if I liked some of them you know so I think that's where I'm coming from right I would give under the pink and I would give all of those four albums number one of of the five that we've reviewed so <laughs> far so so that's where I'm coming from but amazing it's really just she's just so good she's so good she's cool and makes great music and I love her and if you think you're too cool for Tori Amos then you're not and you suck uh, speaking of too cool for Tori Amos, Pitchfork reviewed the the reissue. They gave the reissue an eight point six. You, they give every reissue a fucking ten, and they give I the know. fucking little earthquakes uh, and under the pink. Under the pink, they gave eight point one. These are both ten albums. If you're gonna give yeah, every they're... fucking reissue, okay, sorry, I'm just mad. About, like even years later, people can't. I don't know. People can't quite give her her due because I guess it's it's not cool enough. Yeah, it seems like. This one definitely feels like one of those um, like box checking reissue <laughs> reviews. Like, yeah, well, I have to acknowledge it. <laughs> Everyone has to acknowledge Little Earthquakes, but then they kind of forget about the rest of her catalog. And, and that's kind of a shame. Which sucks because Pele and Choir Girl are like the albums I prefer. I love those albums so much. They're so interesting and weird. Yeah. And I will probably get back to at least one uh-huh. of those. Uh, we, we got to. But I mean, the review is basically positive. It isn't really like... It, it's just basically going over the Tori Amos mythos. I'm sure, like, the reviewer did not pick the scores, but no. I don't know. Come on. Like, uh, here, I'll just read the... These reverently remastered editions of Little Earthquakes and Under the Pink, the first two solo records by Tori Amos, show the singer-songwriter discovering how to obey her compositional muse and harness her prodigious gifts into a singular voice. The legacy of these milestones linger over today's underground, and others all wear their sensitivities as strength as she did. That See, that sounds like a 10.0 review right it does. there, but no, they gave it an 8.6. My problem is, is with the way the review's written is more just like, it feels boring like just saying she's really really great and i feel like it's not really getting into what's interesting about tori amos it feels like it's repeating talking points i mean like imagine if tori amos breakout today like i mean or an equivalent like people would still view her as confrontational like the things that she sings about are like direct in a way that like i'm sorry like a lot of these artists that they mention is influences saint vincent bat for lashes whatever like uh, sufjan stevens uh etc just aren't yeah you know Tori Amos is way better than all of those and people. i i like some of those artists a lot i mean she's definitely in perfume genius i follow him on twitter michael hadreas and he constantly tweets about tori amos so uh, and I think his music is actually probably the the closest I can connect to it, or maybe something like uh, Magdalene by FKA Twigs with the religious imagery and everything like that. But generally, like I think her music is kind of like it's reductive to call it confrontational, but it is confrontational in a way that a lot of these other artists aren't. It's confrontational in a thoughtful and well constructed way. You know, you mentioned like Pussy Riot earlier, you know, nothing against, you know, the things Pussy Riot's done, like protesting in Russia's heart and they're doing a great job. But it's not like, it's not like the music's good. Um, <laughs> oh no, they're not musicians. It's a protest. Yeah. You know, and like a lot of like confrontational music, I feel like isn't good music, which 
it sucks. <laughs> well, and that, that's the problem. Things have become so like bifurcated. Like it's either like, oh, you make good music that's good music-y music or you're like a confrontational artist and you get put into one fucking or you're a queer artist you have to sing about your trauma in a particular way you can only be one type of artist and those archetypes really- I would rather see a trans woman doing Tori Amos songs than another queer noise show ever again yeah I don't know people just get put into boxes so much and that, that didn't really exist before Tori Amos and Kate Bush and some artists like that but now it does for female artists and queer artists too and that's kind of the difficulty. You you kind of have to re-reckon with this stuff because it's not going away. Like all these issues are still very much out in the open. And that's why in spite of maybe some slightly cringe elements or or in or maybe slightly dated 90s production, I think that like her stuff is still just so relevant and I still don't see I only get glimpses of the kind of stuff that she deals with in her music in contemporary artists. Like I said, probably Perfume Genius right. and uh, FK Twigs. And those are the only two examples that I can think of. So, But there, there's a way that she's confrontational. She's defiantly weird, defiantly feminine. Her musical like predilections are so uniquely hers. You know, the way she incorporates classic piano, avant-garde technique, Gaelic music. Like there's so much restless experimentation and songcraft in her work like the idea of her getting pushed off as a singer songwriter as her adult alternative does her music such a just it's like calling kate bush a synth pop artist you know or like yeah bjork a techno artist like it's i guess but you're not really getting at it you're not really engaging with like the work and what it actually is yeah so, i mean hopefully we did our small part <laughs> with, the, with this podcast episode to correct the record for anybody who hasn't heard her music like obviously just go and listen to it please do but yeah uh so this has been the kitchfork podcast I promise we're going to get back into indie music of the aughts. We needed to take a break. Yes. We needed to be a little bit more emotionally direct. I needed to love again. And sincere because before we we jump yeah, back into Yeah, because the... we're just we just been skating around the truth of who we are and <laughs> the ice is we've getting been, We've been silent for so many years. <laughs> we've been silent all these years. <laughs> Uh, um, but yeah, we'll, we haven't decided quite what we're doing. I mean, we we know some of what we're doing for the next four episodes, but... Just not the order yet. Yeah, we'll get to it when we get to it. I set up the email, like I said, kitchforkpodcast at gmail.com. We still haven't posted the previous episode yet, which mentions the email. So maybe by the time we have a next episode, we can read an email if we get any emails. I'll start pushing the email. But yeah, anything else before we go? Uh, no, just absolutely. You have to listen to Tori Amos. If, you're, if you've heard this podcast, go home and listen to Tori Amos. Let us give you life. Let us give you pain and let us give you yourself again. <laughs> okay. Bye. Beautiful. Bye. Give me life, give me pain, give me
Do. Mm-hmm.